Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Well, it's the impact of what I call the divided loyalties on families, including young children, which is exactly what has happened to her, and she writes about it. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jane Strachan discussing the life of Margaret Moncrief. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Jane Strachan, and she'll be discussing the pretty miraculous life of a young woman that most people haven't heard of, Margaret Moncrief. When you study this field long enough, you find a lot of characters that have a lot of interesting run-ins with very powerful people. Margaret Moncrief is one of these people. She'll meet men like Israel Putman and George Washington, uh, and her life will end in a degree of tragedy. But it's the in-between, it's the times of, of great importance that we really learn a lot about these key figures through this young woman's life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Jane Strachan. Jane, tell us about your background. My pleasure, Grady. Great to be here. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, uh, my, my trade, so to speak, is as an IT or a technology lawyer. Uh, uh, prior to that, I was a corporate speechwriter. And um, my background in history uh, started with my grandfather when I was a child who claimed and reminded myself and my siblings that we were related to Israel Putnam, General Israel Putnam from Connecticut. And I'm from originally from Connecticut as well. And that kind of got my curiosity going. And I started to read about him. And then I got the American Revolution bug <laughs> and um, started to read about Washington, John Adams, et cetera, et cetera. And once you have the bug, you can't stop going. So I've been kind of on this trail, so to speak, since I was a, a child and interested in history, um, took uh, U.S. history in um, high school and minored in history in college. Tell us about Margaret's early life. There's a lot we know about her and a lot we don't. Well, I had written previously for the journal about a, an unknown woman and uh, brought her back to life. Um, so that people could see the relevance of her life back then and how it related to people today. And what started me about Margaret Moncrief Coughlin is a biography of Israel Putnam, and she is mentioned in that biography. The biography is from 1905 by William Livingston. So it kind of got my interest going because when I did the prior article, I came to find out that there was a lot of embellishment about my subject. And so I was interested if the same thing 
would hold true for Margaret Coughlin. And um, uh, I'm not quite sure there's, that there's a lot of embellishment, but uh, her story is equally compelling for a woman of her time. Tell us about Margaret's early life. There's a lot we know about her and a lot we don't. Yeah, so she was the daughter of um, Thomas Moncrief, who was a um, officer in the British Army in North America um, uh, from the uh, French and Indian War, in between the French and Indian War and the American Revolution, and then throughout the American Revolution. For most of his time in North America, his home base was in New York City. Uh, he traveled uh, considerably, and uh, several of his uh, closest uh, colleagues and um, his, his superiors were the likes of Jeffrey Amherst, Thomas Gage, and William Howe. So Margaret's early life, she was born in 1762, and um, shortly thereafter, her mother passed away. Thomas Gage suggested to Thomas Moncrief, Margaret's father, that um, Margaret and her older brother, Edward Cornwallis Moncrief, uh, come and live with the Gages, and they would treat Thomas's two children as their own. At age three, father sent her to a girls boarding school in Dublin and her brother went to school there at the same time. Uh, in uh, 1772 when she's 10 years old he brings her back to New York City. Meanwhile her father had two new wives, Margaret's stepmothers, with family connections to the high-profile Livingston's, the John Jay family, in the Van Cortland, all American patriots um, in the New York and the New Jersey area. Her two stepmothers passed away at an early age also. And when Margaret was in the New York area, she had a series of governesses. Then she was brought to the Jay family in New Jersey and then to an American college colonel uh, in New Jersey, in Elizabethtown, New Jersey. Meanwhile, her father, in 1776, comes back from Boston and is based on Staten Island. Meanwhile, she's on New Jersey, and they would like to get together. She writes that um, her father had issues. In her, in her memoir, she writes, that her father had issues with some of his <clears throat> pro-patriot in-laws, as did Margaret. She claims to have heard disparaging comments about her father, a staunch, staunch loyalist, and that she received mistreatment by the Jays. Now, all of that said, um, the impact to Margaret of all of this is she learned very quickly how to be independent because essentially she was brought up without parents around. She also understood the phrase divided loyalties between British supporters like her father and American patriots like some of her in-laws. Uh, she was witness to 
um, the first uh, to at first to the civil war that was taking place on a global scale in North America. So she quickly learned how to be independent, and she also witnessed how uh, divided loyalties within families can have an impact on a child such as herself. Jane, could you talk about some of the revolutionary figures that she'll encounter and maybe how they change her life? Sure. So she uh, has interactions with General Putnam, with uh, the Commander-in-Chief George Washington, and also with Aaron Burr. So here we are in 1776. She's in New Jersey in Patriot Territory, and her father's on Staten Island, and she realizes that she needs a pass in order to move over from patriot um, a territory, if you will, to um, uh, Staten Island, where the British are stationed for an upcoming battle on Long Island, which takes place in August that year. So uh, she writes to Israel Putnam, and he writes back and tells her to come to his headquarters, which is in Lower Manhattan, by the Grand Battery, and uh, just across the New York Harbor over to Staten Island. So uh, her, his wife and two daughters were staying with him at his military headquarters um, down there. So she comes over and she lives in his, uh, I believe it's a four-story mansion, which is now a Citibank building. And uh, she occasionally goes up to the top floor and she discovers Putnam's spyglass and she looks out the window to, to see uh, the, the British ships that, have, um, that are all assembled in the New York Harbor waiting to transport the uh, British Army over to Long Island for an upcoming battle, uh, which takes place in August that year. So Putnam becomes suspicious of her. And then she has some, somewhat of a similar uh, a situation with George Washington, who also begins to suspect her as a British spy, or at least the daughter of you know, a staunch loyalist, and um, that she possibly could be a spy. So her father demands her release over to Staten Island. George Washington says no. And she is sent up to a place called King's Bridge, which is out of the city, uh, north, more into the country. And she can do less harm there or less damage, so to speak, because it's, it's much more isolated than it is downtown in lower Manhattan. And she can't, she can't uh, use, the, there's no spyglass for her up there to use. So um, then what happens is because she is, pretty much a captive, if you will, at King's Bridge. She's being monitored by uh, General Thomas Mifflin and his wife, but she finds time nonetheless to um, meet Aaron Burr, and she falls madly in love with him and uh, writes a a letter to Israel Putnam saying, um, you know, based on, uh, you know, uh, our interactions, it looks like we're going to be married. And he writes her back and says, well, wait a second here, not so fast. Uh, 
you know that if ever he were to meet your father in battle, he would not hesitate one, one minute to stab an enemy, which is your father. Do you really do you understand what you're doing here? <laughs> and uh, he tells Washington, and Washington has the same reaction. It's like, this, is, this has got to stop. So her father finds out, and he forces her to marry a British, a hot-tempered British officer who um, she does not like at all and is very disappointed. She calls it um, her marriage, which happens in early 1777 at Trinity Church, and she calls it honorable prostitution. That's a quote from her memoirs, and that any relief would be found only in the afterlife. Um, so she, um, so she finally gets her pass and she is now en route from lower Manhattan over, uh, over the, um, New York Harbor and onto Staten Island so she can meet with her father. And there's a significant, uh, part there in her memoir where, she realizes, you know, some 30 years later when she's writing this memoir, that once she had set foot on the barge that took her over to Staten Island, she realized that she left liberty behind. So liberty meaning two things to her. Number one, liberty to select who her husband would be, which did not happen due to this forced marriage. And... Uh, she also meant it in a another sense, a, a political sense, because she was already somewhat politically astute, having her father as a staunch loyalist and her stepmothers coming from uh, the pro pro patriot family. So she was she was somewhat an aware young person uh, for the time. So when she uses the phrase liberty. I take that to mean her personal liberty and her liberty to select who her lifetime mate would be. And then it's the political liberty, which um, uh, the Americans were fighting for. And she ultimately makes her way over to Paris just prior to the French Revolution in 1789. And um, she, she is uh, very aware that it's based on liberty, similar to what was happening in the um, in North America. Um, so I take when she uses that phrase, and she uses it uh, several times in her memoir, and I take it to mean two things: one on a personal personal level, the other on a political level. But she uh, she definitely. Uh, use the word liberty that she that once she set foot on that boat she left liberty behind her liberty in the in the person of uh, Aaron Burr and her ability to choose um, who she would be married to not her father forcing it upon her and uh, liberty in the political sense as well So that that was uh, Israel Putnam and, and her encounter with him. George Washington, 
I already mentioned that um, her father has a flag of truce and a letter demanding her release. And Washington uh, is like, no, <laughs> we got to We got to get her um, away from the city where she can find out news about the about the Patriots and what George Washington may be planning and send it over to uh, the British somehow. So um, uh, he says no. And she feels that she is um, now a prisoner of war, as does her father, which is why her father demanded her release. But she is astute enough to realize that she is now a, a she she is now a prisoner of war. So how did how did her life change? Um, well, I guess you could say that. Um, she was treated as a spy by the top brass of the Continental Army, and she was also, in her fairly young life, forced into an unacceptable marriage. Now, at least in my opinion, and looking at it today, that's enough for a lifetime, let alone for a 14-year-old <laughs> to, to, to have to deal with. So um, she, she doesn't really make any statements in her memoir about how that changed her life, these encounters with Putnam and Burr and Washington. But that's my take, having read very carefully her memoir, that, wow, this is a lot for a 14-year-old to deal with. So, um, And I think, as I said before also, that it made her much more aware of liberty in a personal sense and a political sense. So she was, she was pretty astute for a 14-year-old. How does she get to Paris? What happens there? Yeah. Well, first she goes to London, actually. So, um, so she is married in early 1778, and her husband, John Coughlin, is a British officer. And he is sent, soon after they're married, he is sent to Philadelphia, occupied Philadelphia. And he decides to sell his commission, and he comes back to New York City and says, okay, we're going over to London, but we're going by way of Ireland. And when we get over there, he surprises her and says he's taking her to a mansion in Wales, and she's going to sit there and uh, start to get with the program. That is his program. <laughs> so she uh, finds a way to escape from him one day. When he, I guess he wasn't there, if I remember correctly. And she does a solitary walk all the way to London. And once there, she has no income. She's no longer married. She becomes a serial courtesan. So she has a number of um, uh, companions who pay her freight. And that includes, you know, her fancy dresses, because these are all pretty high-level people that she's interacting with. So the first one is a friend of the family, which is how she got in touch with him first. His name is Lord Thomas Clinton. Uh, uh, eventually to be the Duke of Newcastle, she meets Charles Fox, who's a Whig statesman that is more pro-patriot um, than his many of his colleagues would like him to be in Parliament, 
and she meets her, the person who probably is another true love, Captain Andrew Barnard from Ireland. Uh, he's also a military officer and ultimately becomes a diplomat in Cape Town, South Africa, because of his wife's connections. Then she meets a gentleman by the name of Mr. Gifford, who is duped uh, out of his uh, uh, businesses and his money, and he couldn't pay her bills. So she's taken aside by his friend, Mr. Gifford's friend, and advised to leave for the continent. So what she does first is she uh, fakes her own death to, in order to avoid creditors, and um, uh, her death, um, this is 1787 now, I believe, it appears in some of the London newspapers. And so she comes over to Paris, and out of necessity, she picks up exactly where she left off in London. Uh, the first person that she meets is someone in her apartment building in Paris, and she becomes his number one Parisian beauty. And she seems to really like that. And her landlady is the same as Mr. Beckett's. And uh, they're both, Margaret and Beckett are both in arrears, and she wants her back rent. Beckett's father pays for his son, but not for Margaret. So Beckett leaves her high and dry and escapes. So a hundred police descend on her. Um, she's now in jail and pregnant. So she has enough friends in Paris that they appeal to uh, Louis XVI's son, who brings her to a special prison just outside of Paris where it's much more uh, suitable to uh, her living environment <laughs> and not a prison as you would think debtor's prison might otherwise be. So um, she is able to, her friends help her get money from some French, uh, some French people and enough money for her to leave to go back to England, to London, and which she does just 10 days before Bastille Day, which is July 14, 1789, so she goes back to London. And she, she views this um, positively. This, I mean, the, um, the French Revolution, because this is another form of liberty, um, and um, that a republic is going to be established in France, unlike the aristocracy that is prevailing at the time in London and England. So she, she views what is going on there as very positive. As soon as she sets foot back in London, however, creditors are waiting for her, and she winds up back in prison in London, uh, which is a godforsaken place vis-a-vis -vis the royal prison that she was sent to.
Jane, talk about Margaret's biggest challenges she'll face later in life. They're mostly financial. Yeah, sure. Well, the financial, her financial uh, downfall is because she can't pay her own bills because she is used to having men support her. She's got no trade um, uh, and uh, no work experience to speak of. And uh, she's supposed to be taken care of either by her father or her husband. So it's the social mores of the time, including the legal system, which resulted in women's forced dependence on men. And the prevailing legal doctrine at the time is called coverture. And so uh, based on that doctrine um, or that word, uh, from birth, a young girl is covered, so to speak, by her father, and upon marriage, her legal rights and obligations are taken over by those of her husband. The wife could not sue or be sued, form contracts, buy or sell property apart from her husband. Even her personal property, including clothing and jewelry, were not her own. So... Uh, also, legal separation and divorce were rare and frowned upon by all classes of society. So this is why she is very pessimistic about what she calls, quote, the horrid chains of matrimony, which never can be dissolved, but, but by his death, meaning her husband or her, her own death. So that's, that's part of an overarching problem. Uh, it's a societal issue. Uh, and part of it is the mores of the time, and it's also the legal system. I mean, she refers to lawyers as pettifoggers uh, throughout her memoir. And um, so women were entirely dependent on men. So she's become a high society courtesan because she's tried to escape from her husband and is out on her own, and has no money of her own. So, so those, are, those are pretty big challenges because they are uh, societal or, or cultural in nature or legal in nature. Pretty hard to uh, fight against those. How does her story end? Well, the story ends with her in debtor's prison, uh, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Somebody helps her out. Some people are known. Some are unknown. Some are prior um, companions. Um, but she uh, winds up writing to, she finds out that one of the Livingstons, who I've mentioned before, happens to be in London. She writes him a letter and asks for a very small amount of money, a pittance. And uh, apparently she never hears back. Then, that was in 1803, then 1805, she decided to write a letter to King George III and uh, ask for his royal mercy um, because of her circumstances, including the fact that her father, uh, his estates, including his property, were confiscated during the war by the patriots. And so she had no inheritance from her father. So she's asking for help from the king because her father provided military service to the British government. 
and uh, that he should be recognized and that she should be recognized as well. And can I get some money from you, the king? (laughs) And that is the end of the paper trail on her. She doesn't talk, she does not talk about these letters, but they are out there and you can read them in her handwriting. Jane, how does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Yeah. Um, Well, it's the impact of what I call the divided loyalties on families, including young children, which is exactly what has happened to her, and she writes about it. Um, And then it's also understanding the plight of married women during that time, and that women could, as I mentioned her memoir several times, that women could and did put pen to paper and advise other women to save up for the future. And she does that in her memoir in no uncertain terms. Jane Strachan, thanks again. My pleasure, Brady. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.